0: Americans, this is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day.
1: Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys
0: podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoy today's show, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Our
1: guest today is Tim Carney. Tim is the commentary editor at the Washington Examiner, a visiting fellow at AEI, and he's the author of the new book just out, Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. Tim, welcome to the program.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: So, my goal—you are the first Carney to appear on uh, the Urbane Cowboys podcast. My goal is eventually to have all the Carneys, but uh, congratulations for being the first.
2: Uh, thank you, and and you're uh, saving the the best for first. I promise.
1: You. <laughs> okay, so. Alienated America sounds like kind of a dreary title. What is the book about?
2: Well, I started to write it because what I saw early in the Republican primaries in 2016, that a lot of people believed the American dream was dead. And that's why they were signing up for Donald Trump and rallying behind him. And the truth is the working class woe in America is a real thing. And that it's not just an economic thing, though. When we see the deaths of despair, when we see rising inequality, we see falling economic mobility, all of these problems are real. And some people just blame it on economics. And then there's some people on the left who said, oh, well, this is just the deplorables refusing to keep up, upset that white men are no longer as in charge as they used to be. But I went around the country, I studied the economic data, and I found out the woe is real. But the root cause of it isn't just economic. It's about the collapse of community. Specifically, the institutions that bring people together, that provide modeling, that provide a sense of purpose, that provide a safety net. Mostly, though, that means church. These institutions are fading away in a lot of middle America. They're still there in the elite parts of the country and in some really strong religious communities, but most of America doesn't have that connectivity and they're suffering because of it.
1: So let's unpack that a little bit, because I know people go back and forth about how bad are things for the middle class, the working class? Are things really stagnated? And then people will say, no, if you look at this chart or graph or control for these variables, actually things are fine. So what's the case that actually things have not been going great for working class Americans over the past decades, I guess.
2: Well, the first thing you can look at some of the the pure economics and say that while there has been wage growth for the average American, the average American without a college degree has not seen wage growth really until the last couple months, and that this is just beginning to catch up for a real stagnation from the mid to late 60s until the last couple of years. But more importantly, and I'm I'm like a social conservative guy, so there's lots of things I think matter that maybe not everybody else does, but marriage is dramatically on the decline among the working class. It used to be 84% of all people of any educational level were married at age 40 in 1960. Now it's down to about two-thirds of those with college degrees, but it's falling below 50% for those without any college education and just at 50% for those without a degree, but who went to college. You have out-of-wedlock births rising, and of course you have the deaths of despair that sociologists have pointed to, opioid overdoses, alcohol-related deaths, and suicides really rising, particularly among white males who do not have college degrees and are not in the top quintile of income. So all of these are real suffering that you cannot deny.
1: Yeah, I think when you talk about some of these metrics, the difference between Americans that have college degrees and those that don't have college degrees can be really stark. I mean, it's it's almost like, I know John Edwards, you know, he had his famous, there are two Americas type thing, but it really does seem that way in terms of marriage, children, economics, even church attendance. I, I guess, you know, the stereotype is you have all these highly educated yuppies or whatever. They're the ones that are secularists, but actually you're more likely to go to church if you have a college degree and you're you know, making a fair amount of money than if you're working class these days.
2: Well, yeah, I, I address what I call the Lena Dunham fallacy in <laughs> Alienated America. I write that there's a lot of times when somebody says, oh, marriage is disappearing out of wedlock, births are on the rise. Uh, America is secularizing people, fewer people are going to church. My conservative friends will assume that this is all a bunch of Wesleyan alumni who are going out there and, you know, just being these decadent, wealthy people. And they exist. And, you know, I was able to name one, Lena Dunham. But most of the elites, most college-educated people, they do make more money. They do vote Democratic. But if they're liberal elites, they are practicing what we conservatives are preaching, They're finishing school, even if it's just high school, getting a job, getting married, having kids, staying married, staying involved in their children's lives. That's what most of the elites in America, left or right, are doing. And when secularization does happen in those circles, they have other institutions to turn to and not just country clubs, but country clubs are among them, but even just really strong public schools. Strong public schools is almost synonymous with public school in a high income, highly educated place because the parents are very involved. And then good sports leagues, all of these things, even the bowling leagues, are going to be stronger among the elites than they are among the working class. And so the working class is left without the institutions to connect people. And that's why I call it alienation that they're suffering from. They're suffering from the fact that they're not plugged into society. And many of them even sort of fail to see the point of doing so.
1: What happened? What do you think explains this collapse in civic institutions? We've had prior guests who talk about there's been a general loss of respect for authority, whether that's trust in government or trust in churches or whatnot. You've had a decline of all sorts of things from, you know, you talk about the bowling leagues, but even unions, you know, other sorts of civic associations. Clearly that's disproportionately affected certain segments of society more than others. You know, what happened? Was it just uh, Reaganomics was it uh, secularism? You know, was it welfareism? What, what do you think explains yeah, was,
2: the way one way easy, uh, not easy, but useful way to think about it? Um, if you read Tocqueville's Democracy in America, he sort of draws out the concept that two concepts that seem opposite, which would be over-centralization and hyper-individualism. One is everything gets drawn together. One is everything gets pulled apart into individuals. Those two concepts are not opposites. Yuval Levin, great conservative writer, says they are two sides of the same coin. And so to think about that, that hyper-individualism and over-centralization have been the the forces here. I mean, to start with the hyper individualism, one thing is technology just allows us to retreat into our own world, whether it's our houses that are much bigger TV channels, internet, or whether it's just staring at your Facebook, your Twitter, or listening to your podcast, not that there's anything wrong with podcasts, listening to your (laughs) podcasts, instead of uh, being with the people around you. That's a case of hyper individualism facilitated by technology, drawing people away. They measured at one point in the 1960s, The percent of beer that was consumed in public places, and it was 90%, now it's down to 50%. I love the fact that it's it's easier for me to just watch the football game on my own TV and drink a beer, but there are negative societal effects of that. But then also the over-centralization. You referred to the welfare state. That's definitely a factor here, where in Alienated America, I point to multiple studies talking about the crowding out effect. That for every dollar of federal spending, it reduces church charitable spending by 30 cents. Then, for every dollar of federal spending that's pulled away, they look and they studied welfare reform. They found that when the federal money was pulled away, church money for uh, the needy went back up in those places. You certainly have lots of that going on, but you see the next step though is that more government often helps drive that individualism because it helps kill those institutions. A lot of the churches, one reason churches shut down is because they had less of sort of a civic purpose when government crowded them out. And so then people stop going and they end up alone and then they end up alone and in more need of material things. And so what ends up occurring there is that people then turn to the government. And so the centralization and hyper-individualism go together.
0: Your colleague at AEI, uh, Jonah Goldberg, he just wrote his book, uh, Suicide of the West, and it sort of famously opens up with the line, there is no God in this book, but you're talking a lot about church. Is there much God in your book?
2: Yeah, the front cover is a shuttered down church right outside of Williston, North Dakota. The first story partly takes place, it's about my daughter being sick, it partly takes place in our parish, St. Andrew, out in Silver Spring. And it ends uh, with sort of a nod to Shakespeare with a, a, a wedding going down the aisle in my home parish. You can't talk about community and civil society in America without talking about religion. For the middle class and the working class in America, that has been the core institution, the beating heart of civil society. Robert Putnam, who wrote Bowling Alone, acknowledges that, where he says 50% of all civic activity in America originates in a church, whether it's a potluck, whether it's a soup kitchen, whether it's a t-ball tea team or actual worship, half of it begins in the church. I talk about Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods around uh, around my house that where, you know, they're not allowed to drive on the Sabbath. So the intense local community that that forms and the bonds that it creates are immense. And I talk about the effect that the Hajj, the the annual pilgrimage to Mecca, has on making the participants warmer, more open, not just to Muslims from different parts of the world, but actually to the West and to non-Muslims, this joint sacrificial Religious undertaking that's massively communal has these measurable positive effect on the people who take place in it So yeah, the central chapter of my book is called it's about church. So yeah, there's a lot of God in this book
1: It's interesting one of the things that's been noted about the 2016 primary is that one of the most traditionally conservative groups that at the same time was not at all interested in Trump were members of the LDS church, the Mormons, Utah, and you surrounding places. It has I, I suppose been speculated that part of that might be that they still have this intact civil society that you talk about, you know, integrating self-help and church and community, family, all those sorts of things, and that because of that, they you know may not have seen the appeal of a Trump type figure as much because they don't experience that sort of alienation
2: that's exactly right i think the single best way to Explained where Trump did poorly and where he did well in the Republican primaries was if you could come up with a measure of alienation. His strongest county in all of Iowa was Fremont County, which is at the very bottom of various measures of social capital put out by University of Pennsylvania, put out by Mike uh, Mike Lee's staff in the U.S. Senate. That was Trump's very best county, and that was the worst one as far as all the churches were closing down, having institutions like movie theaters and having people. People who are volunteering and his very worst county was Sioux County Iowa which is sort of 50% Dutch there's all these in Orange City and in Sioux Center not only are there, there are these Christian colleges there's just this immense level of community involvement of outreach to people the churches there um, the the Dutch Reformed churches are almost like these mini Mormons. I have joke in that they build these really intense institutions of civil society in places like Western Michigan, where Trump also bombed in the primaries. So in the book, I lay out the sort of three dozen worst counties. They all fit into one of three categories: either they are Mormon, they're Dutch, or they're one of the twenty five most educated counties in America. So again, I'm talking about the primaries. If he got below twenty percent in a county. It was either Mormon, Dutch, or elite. Those are the places where civil society is the strongest. That's what got me on to realizing these people who believe the man who says the American dream is dead, maybe they have a point if they're lacking these institutions that the rest of us, I'm in strong Catholic communities and living in the DC area. I'm in both elite circles and strong religious circles. These institutions I take for granted, that's what's missing in so much of America. And one of the manifestations of that was that the guy who showed up and said the American dream is dead, he carried the day. In the 2016 election.
0: It's interesting that you say that because uh, I think the AEI just came out with a report that was sort of touting, uh, and, I, and I think that's the full report, I think it's like 81 pages. So I, all I've been, managed to do so far is read the one pager, but making their case that the American dream's not dead. But it was interesting that I think that their conclusion was it wasn't so much an economic thing as much as the American dream, sort of a pursuit of happiness and pursuit of freedom was still... Uh, satisfying people. I don't think you were part of that particular study, but how does that fit in with uh, you know what's in your book?
2: I'm, I'm glad you asked, because I just wrote my Washington Examiner column recently on exactly that. Americans have warm attitudes towards their local communities, but then when you ask them how involved are you, it's bad. It's what Robert Putnam argued in Bowling Alone two decades ago, but getting worse. People say they like their neighbors, but then they most people say they've never actually turned to their neighbors for help and their neighbors have never actually turned to them in an emergency. And so what I argue is that, yes, if people say the American dream is sort of freedom and pursuing your own world, that's an individualistic pursuit. There's nothing wrong with that. I wouldn't even call that necessarily hyper individualistic. That's an individualistic understanding. But most people don't think the American dream means contributing to your community. And if people have warm feelings towards their community and negative feelings towards the central government, I think it's because they expect too much from their central government and too little from their community. They expect the safety net and the sense of purpose to be provided by Washington when really those things are supposed to be provided by their local congregation, their swim club, their rotary club, their bowling league.
0: Well, on that point, um, I saw you at the AEI Leadership Summit in Chicago last fall, and uh, you used a line that I've stolen and repeated several times: that the government should be a safety net of safety nets. Yep. Unpack that a little bit.
2: So, the first thing to realize, and this is a harder thing for conservative or libertarian leanings like me to come around to, but that the the federal government really does have a unique ability to provide. Economic security in important ways. First of all, it can redistribute wealth nationally. We know that Mississippi and Arkansas are much poorer than Connecticut and Maryland, so that's a, that's a role of the federal government to play. We know that when a disaster hits in Houston, it's very effective to have the 99% of the country that hasn't been flooded paying for that. A second point, besides the redistribution, is the ability to be countercyclical. They make their own money, so when the Great Depression hit. So many churches and private charities, as well as local and state governments, weren't able to provide the aid that they normally did. So, right when it's most needed, these things become weakened. So, that's an argument for a federal role. Unfortunately, the New Deal and the Great Society took these things to mean that the federal government should replace. These local groups. So, why are the local groups important? Well, they're the ones that deal with you on a human level. For the recipient, they're the ones that are least likely to A, be exploited, or to B, sort of treat you like dirt and make you pee in a cup before they give you you, your bowl of soup in the way the state and federal governments do. So, the closer to the human being that you can administer the aid, and the, the Mormon church is a great example of this, the closer to the human being you can administer the aid the better. The federal government's job should be, if these organizations either lack the funds or in, an, in a depression are unable to do it, then there should be federal support for the institutions that do it, or the federal government steps in and replaces the institutions where they're absent. So this is my way of sort of not taking the hard libertarian line, that there should be no federal role, but also taking the localist line. It ought to be whenever possible, provided by the people who are close to the human level.
1: That's interesting. I've always thought of you, Tim, and I I think this is accurate as kind of a limited government guy. Uh, I know that part of the Trump phenomenon has been a rethink among some people about the role of government. Uh, I know Tucker Carlson famously launched a thousand think pieces when he did a segment saying that conservatives needed to start questioning free market capitalism or whatever. Mm -hmm. So have your views on the role of government kind of evolved in response to this whole thing? Are you more willing to continence a role? role for government in in some of these areas? How do you square that
2: circle? Yeah, I think that's a great question. In one way, sort of my anger at bad and destructive welfare programs has increased because I realized that there's a very acute harm. To things that crowd out civil society, or not just crowd out, in the case of the Obama administration and presumably if we get a Kamala Harris administration, the actual attacks on the church and the efforts to drive religious organizations back into the corner and out of the public square are causing these deaths of despair and all of this alienation. So in some ways, my anger at these government programs went from being it's a waste of money and it's hurting people by providing the individuals with bad incentives, has expanded to it's really destroying a lot of society by destroying key institutions on the other hand if a local government came to us and said our main street is incredibly robust and we saw what happened three towns over when somebody built a strip mall with a walmart and a dunkin donuts and now everybody drives and nobody walks and nobody knows their neighbors if a mayor told me they were going to do that I would not argue against it. I don't know that it would work. Maybe it wouldn't. Maybe the main street would still rot, but I think it would be worth trying an experiment on that. On the very local level, again, there's going to be more understanding of what's needed. Local governments are often very inept and, and often engage in protectionism. That's That's utterly destructive. But if what they were trying to save was institutions of civil society rather than just well-connected businessmen. And I'm not sure you can make that distinction, but if you can, I would not be in a position of saying don't do that because that undermines uh, the idea of the free market because I think that, again, you could get a real loss if the main street where people walk and run into their neighbors is replaced by something where it's just take the car, get out of the car, engage in your commerce and go back home. That's not the sum total of life anymore. So yeah, it's making me a bit into a, a communist, if that's where you're going with this.
1: <laughs> I didn't want to say it, yes. but since you mentioned it, <laughs> Yeah. I do want to highlight one thing that you mentioned about, you know, specifically the not just the welfare stuff, but the kind of legal attacks on religious institutions or belief or whatnot. I recently read, I believe her name is Mary Eberstadt's book, It's Dangerous to Believe. Mm-hmm. I think her husband is at AEI. She's not, she's at Hoover. And, you know, one of the things that comes through there is just like the craziness of these kind of concerted campaigns by certain state and federal government officials, the ACL you, other folks like that, to drive religious organizations out of different charitable businesses, soup kitchens, adoptions, and whatnot, because they don't support various aspects of social liberalism. To me, it just seems kind of insane that you know, in a country where it's not like there's an overabundance of folks that are that are doing this sort of stuff, this sort of charitable activities, the ACLU doesn't run soup kitchens, you know, I'm not saying that they don't perform valuable services sometimes. But it's not like they're saying, okay, we're going to step in and replace these folks. They're just like, you don't, you know, agree with what we think is right on gender or whatever. And so therefore, you have to stop helping people. And if that means that there's no one to help people, then well, they don't really have an answer. for
2: that. No, and it's, I, it's hard to explain. You're right. It's insane. So one of one of the trips I took for this book was to Toledo, Ohio, which I did not know before or working on this. is a place that has a very large Muslim population, and the the Islamic Center of Greater Toledo, which I would have thought was like a a, a fictional thing because I think of I don't think of Middle America as being that way, but it is the Islamic Center of Greater Toledo operates a halal food pantry. Now, anyone can go to there. It's not like they're saying you have to be Muslim to come and get the food. But if you show up and say, could I actually get a BLT? They're going to say, no, the food is going to be halal. And so the idea that I would oppose somebody setting up a, a charitable organization that followed their own morality and didn't follow my morality Not that they're imposing anything. They're just saying the way we're going to conduct our business is going to be according to our own rules. Opposing that seems insane and and malicious, but I think there's a mindset that really, and it's, it's prevalent, more prevalent in Europe, I believe, of secularism, which is that churches ought to stay to themselves. Nancy Pelosi said in defending the contraception mandate, I do my religion on Sundays. She added that she tries to go to church more than just on Sundays, but in other words, doing her religion was simply done at mass. And the Obama administration used a telling phrase often where they would refer to the freedom of worship, as if the free exercise of religion guaranteed by the First Amendment was simply a freedom to pray and attend the church services you want. A Christian organization is not freely exercising its religion if it's not out there feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, and helping the poor and housing the homeless. That's literally what the what right. Christians are obligated to do. But this is what they're saying. They're saying, look, worship how you like. But once you step into the public squares, you have to follow elite morality. You may not follow your own religious morality.
0: So I wanted to uh, ask you another question. We uh, recently had Jay Caruso on the show, and uh, he told us a little bit about the relaunch of the Washington Examiner. So I wanted to ask you, tell us your vision for uh, the the Washington Examiner.
2: So the Examiner has been in a very interesting place for a couple of years, which is that we've always been conservative and it was sort of Easy under Obama to know what most of our commentary would be. There was these divisions in the party: Tea Partiers and establishment, and we were closer to the Tea Partiers than the Wall Street Journal was. But we weren't. You know, we were also would be critical of Cruz when we thought he went too far. But the the divisions were mostly left versus right. Now with the Republicans having controlled Congress for two years and Donald Trump being in the White House, there's a lot more divisions, and I think that some uh, a lot of people. On the right, have become Trump supporters, which is great if you're a voter or a regular person, but not if you're a commentator or a journalist. So now I'm I'm speaking for the opinion page on on the Examiner here, not the not the news side. And then some people became what I called still never Trumpers, where they. Uh, even after the election was over, they let Trump determine their opinion, but in the opposite way of the people who were just Trump supporters. They were against it if, if he was for it. What we've tried to do is not let Trump make up our mind for us and not hesitate from criticizing him, but also not be afraid to be so uncouth as to say, He's doing the right thing. So we praised him when he pulled out of the uh, Paris Climate Accords. But we've said at the same time, Congress needs to take away his ability to impose tariffs because these tariffs are bad for the economy. We criticize him when uh, harshly, repeatedly, in multiple pieces, when he said what he said after Charlottesville, which was sort of giving a stamp of approval to white nationalism. But we've also defended, uh, defended his tax cuts and also criticized some of his critics in the media for losing all their sobriety and their, and their sense of purpose. So it's, it's been a tough line to walk, but I think it's important because it's at times like this where it's harder to articulate and more needed to articulate conservative principles when it's so easy to let personalities in one way or another sway you away from what really is right.
1: Final question. The government of Hungary recently, I don't know if you've seen this, but they recently announced a policy where anyone who has four or more more children is going to be exempt from income tax for the rest of their life. And uh, I know that you take a kind of old school Catholic approach to the question of uh, begetting children. So what do you think about that as an idea for the United
2: States? I ha- already have my Learn Hungarian in 30 Days book right here in front of me. And my <laughs> wife and I are moving off there. And- no. So I think that uh, we do have to worry about what Newt Gingrich once called right wing social engineering. I, I generally don't like, especially the central government, having a, a tax code that's not neutral, that's there to incentivize. But what most tweaks in the tax code are supposed to do, if it's not just a straight, plain, totally flat tax code, have a tweak to capture distortions or to capture externalities. So one of the policies that I have favorite, first of all, I liked the personal exemption that they got rid of in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. They replaced it with a tax credit the virtue of which is that it gets more money to poorer people. But the personal exemption basically said, for every person in your house, we're going to say, you don't have to pay taxes on the first 10000 or 5000 for a kid. It was basically, you're going to take care of your basic needs before you have to pay taxes. I think that's a good policy. What I would do as my tax reform is I would want to have a personal exemption, but I would also want to have a personal exemption on social security, particularly social security, right? My six children are going to be paying into this and that, uh, the, the people who are childless, who are my age in 25 years, they're going to be basically taking the money from my six children who I fed. So I'm not saying, you know, some special super tax credit for me, but my household has eight people in it. I'm paying up taxes on the first penny of my taxes into Social Security. How about I get to at least feed them lunch and dinner before I have to pay in to uh, Social Security? Everybody gets a, a personal exemption against Social Security, and so it will be bigger – for a bigger household. That has some of the same effects as the Hungarian thing, but without it being the government paying you, it's just the government recognizing we're not going to take your money till your basic needs are taken care of.
1: I was at a party recently and a woman there was complaining about the child tax credit because she said, well, I i don't have any kids, so why am I having to pay for other people you know they're getting this thing that I don't have, and of course, like you know, someday she's going to want to retire, and someone's going to have to pay for the social security, or someone's going to have to take care of her. But I did think, well, you know, maybe maybe the solution is in the in the same way that you know, if you have a, a married couple who files jointly, all the the tax thresholds all yep. get doubled, right? So maybe you could just do that. Where you know, if you're a single person, the tax thresholds are X, and if you have eight people in the household, you have six kids, then the thresholds. Are eight x Oh yeah, I
2: I right? propose that uh, um, that mostly helps wealthy people with big families, which hopefully is me after Alienated America becomes a runaway bestseller.
1: Yeah, you're right. Yeah, the the, the credits would have the advantage that they would help people who don't have a or the exemption, which is effectively
2: with. we're we're just tweaking tweaking the zero percent rate. Right, right.
1: Tim, thank you very much for joining us. You want to uh, plug the book one more time? Where can people get it? Uh, all places where that's, they sell that's books. That's exactly right. I Alienated
2: assume. America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse is the, the name of the book. It's it's on Amazon. It's on barnesandnoble.com, and it's, it should be at your bookstore. If it's not, demand it, and it, there's also a, a Kindle edition plus an audio book that you can, you can pick up uh, basically right away. And, uh,
1: available also at uh, Little Leagues throughout the Silver <laughs> yes, Spring hopefully. area. All right, uh, Tim, thank Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Only two things scare me, and one is nuclear war. What's the other? Excuse me? What's the other thing that scares you? Carnies.
0: What? Circus folk. Nomads, you know. Smell like cabbage.
2: Small hands.